Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning. Somebody's going to have to wind that back up for me. I broke my foot, and I'm trying to figure out how to have arthritic knees and a broken foot. Okay, here we go. Oh, no, it's okay. I'll be fine. I'm very young. Okay, good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts, and um, many, one verse and several, I mean, one book and several verses. Um, Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders from among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin of Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds. We have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and when they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Rajan. Okay, so we're going to get to that passage in a little bit. Uh, But as Andrew said, this is week two of a special sermon series dealing with, first of all, how do we read the Bible? And that was last week, and we talked about seeing the Bible through this as a 70-sided gem, and you have to keep turning it and reading it layer by layer. 
And uh, it, it, there was a lot of really good interaction. I loved it. And I got an email during the week that I want to sort of highlight uh, because I wish I would have said what this email uh, encouraged me to say, and that is this, that the Bible has been really weaponized uh, against so many different people. The Bible has been used to subject people and to oppress people. And she said, listen, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I get that, but can we just take a hot second to just recognize that and name it? And I wish I would have done that last week. I didn't. Uh, so I want to do it this week. Whatever else we do when we talk about the Bible, we have to acknowledge that it has been used as, and still is being used as a way to oppress people instead of set them free. And whatever our views on whatever issue, which are going to be really diverse, we can agree that that was not the intention, amen, of the Bible. So before moving on into today's topic, which is what does the Bible really say about LGBTQIA plus relationships, gender identity, orientation, uh, I want to take a just noticing also who's in the room, okay? So I want you to just do a quick risky thing. Just look around for a little bit. Just, just look around. Here, here are the people <laughs> with whom you're gathered. And uh, some of us in this room can no longer take the Bible seriously because of the harm that it's done, particularly to the LGBTQIA plus community and to many other people groups, including women, people of color, slaves, Jews, just to name a few. That's in the room. Some of us in the room don't believe the Bible permits same-sex relationships. That's in the room. Some of us aren't sure about what we believe about LGBTQIA plus inclusion. That's in the room. Some of us have changed our minds about what we believe about inclusion. Some of us in the room are queer and out. That's in the room. Some of us in this room are queer and closeted. That's in the room. So as we have this conversation, right, this isn't an issue that we're going to get right. It is a conversation that we're going to have together, back and forth, listening, learning, expanding. So on that note, I'd like to say that we can disagree on many things, including personal opinions on LGBTQ inclusion. We can disagree on that. But can we agree on the following postures? That number one, we'll enter into the conversation with humility. That we'll each admit that our personal convictions or beliefs might be wrong, <laughs> right? Or at the very least, limited. Can we agree that we'll enter with faithfulness? We'll remember that Jesus is leading the church and the Spirit can lead us through hard conversations with grace. Can we enter with freedom? Can we consciously decide that those with whom we disagree are also taking the Bible seriously and are also following Christ seriously? That's a tough one, but that's extending freedom to one another. And then lastly, can we agree to enter with openness? 
Can we be open to changing our minds, open to what the Spirit seems to be doing among us, and open to arriving at an outcome that maybe we didn't anticipate or even desire as long as we arrive together? And by together, I don't mean everyone believes exactly the same thing. But I mean as a community that we can discern what the Holy Spirit is doing among us, what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Can we agree on those postures? Okay, so this week, what does the Bible say about LGBTQIA plus relationships, gender identity, and sexual orientation? I'm glad you all agreed to stay here until 7 o'clock tonight. <laughs> it's just such a helpful thing for me, so I don't feel rushed as I'm getting through all this material. Uh, so uh, first of all, I want to say the biblical support for traditional understanding of marriage uh, fundamentally comes from two different verses, and they're sort of tied together. And the first one is Genesis 2.24. So we have Genesis 1 and 2. The, the, before we get to Genesis 3, before we get to the fall, we have creation and we have a man that's created and a woman that's created. And there's a verse in Genesis 2.24 that says this. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. So most people that really say creation order determines uh, what's, what marriage should be. And, and then they, they, we, us, them, trying to use as many pronouns as possible, uh, tie Matthew 19, 3 through 6, where Jesus quotes that, where some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now that is about divorce, 100%. That's the context. But people say, listen, Jesus said this, tying it back to creation. And so that's really, that, that's, that's, a, that's a, a nice one to um, I was going to say punch, so to speak. I don't want to say one-two punch. Um, and then there are six passages that seem to condemn same-sex relationships. And what I've done is, um, hopefully you have received a packet. A packet. Uh, and, yep, if you don't have one and you want one, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you. I'm going to buzz through these pretty quickly because there's a different passage that I want to spend more time in. But if you want more information about these six passages, just take a reading of the packet. Make sense? All right, so the first couple of verses come from Leviticus, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. It basically says the same thing. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman, talking to men. It's an abomination. And then in chapter 20 of Leviticus, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So uh, we have a really clear prohibition of a kind of relationship that happens one man with another. What is unclear is what kind of relationship is being condemned. The word abomination is interesting. Tovah is the Hebrew word. And in the scriptures, tovah is reserved for something that's culturally detestable. Uh, so, for example, like in the United States of America, eating dog meat would be culturally detestable. It would be tovah. 
However, in China, not tova. And so it's a matter in this, I think, a good interpretation, whatever you believe about um, same-sex marriage, traditional marriage, in Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, uh, a kind of relationship is being condemned that is most likely the kind of relationship that's spoken about uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the third verse, right? So what is an abomination? They're not, one could argue, most theologians argue that in Leviticus, because there's a whole list of other things that are forbidden as well, including eating shellfish, and if you're caught in adultery, you should be uh, put to death. And even in Leviticus 20, it says that, uh, you know, they shall be put to death. So most people that hold a traditional view on marriage on the basis of some of these verses wouldn't go that far. Like they would say, I, I, I believe that first sentence, but man, that second sentence is really harsh. Like put to death, okay, not sure if I can go there. And again, there's a whole long list. And so you can't really build a firm theology uh, by taking a passage and saying, this is forbidden, so it forever is forbidden, but these other things like shellfish and committing adultery should be put to death are forbidden. Does that make sense? Anyway, it's most, am I ringing a little bit, Matt or Dave? Can we, yeah, it sounds like there's a little ring. And so, um, so essentially what's probably being forbidden is what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, the story where uh, the, the, everyone in the town comes and says to Lot, we want to have sex with the two angels that are in your house. So some questions should come up for you. Number one, is it possible that all the men in the town are gay? Now, it's possible, highly unlikely, Right, highly. I mean, it'd be a pretty special town if that were the case. We can laugh. We have to laugh this morning, gang. If you don't laugh at all, my job is not going to have been done well. Uh, secondly, in the Bible, it, elsewhere, it talks about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what it lists is not same-sex relationships, but it lists lack of hospitality. Because this city was not hospitable to these two angels, that was the sin. And anyway, what they wanted to do was forcibly rape these two men as a way of showing domination. That is what's being condemned as an abomination, most likely. It's not likely that in Genesis or Leviticus, they are imagining a monogamous, consensual same-sex marriage. It's just not likely that they're imagining that. So, again, in these three passages, Leviticus 18, 20, and, and the one in Genesis, uh, what is being, a kind of same-sex relationship is being condemned, but it's a violent one where one is trying to subjugate the other. Uh, now, when we get to Romans 1, this is the fourth of the sixth verses. This is the hardest one, and this is the one where there's, I'm going to spend a little more time uh, because it's really, it's really tricky. And so Romans 1.27, the males traded natural sexual relations with females and burned with lust for each other. So um, in the next several verses, the list grows longer about what is forbidden. 
people who, and, and uh, Paul is sort of, he, he's, he's saying they. They were uh, filled with lust for one another. And he goes on, they were full of envy. They were full of murder. They were full of strife. They were full of deceit, craftiness, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward their parents, foolish, faithless, and heartless. They are all those things. And so who's he talking to, you know? He's talking to an us about them. And what Paul is doing in Romans is he's trying to unite Jewish believers in Christ with Gentile believers in Christ. And guess what? That's a very difficult thing to do. Because you got Greek culture coming in through the Gentiles, you got Torah coming in through the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers are saying, hey, we had to do all that stuff, you should too. The Gentile believers are saying, yeah, but, you know, there's this great wisdom culture that we have that you don't have. And so Paul is trying to unite them. But he, he is doing it in a really uh, subversive, Carrie would love it because Carrie's a lawyer kind of way. So imagine, if I'm trying, let's, let's imagine for a second. Now, this is, a, this is a, a purposefully light illustration to make a point, okay? But let's just imagine there's no Packer fans in the house. Let's imagine they're all, we're all Vikings fans. But we're trying to build a church that's hospitable to Packer fans, right? I'm going to say to you, though, have you ever been to Lambeau? Oh, my gosh, those Packer fans. Have you ever been to a Lambeau bathroom? Have you ever been in a fight in a Lambeau bathroom? Have you ever worn an Adrian Peterson jersey to Lambeau? You're going to get beat up. Now, uh, that's probably less true at Lambeau than it is at, say, you know, in Philadelphia and Eagle Stadium. But uh, what I'm going to do is try to whip you up into a frenzy against the Packers so that you, you're starting to think, like, yeah, those guys are idiots and those guys are mean. I hate those guys. But then what Paul does in chapter 2 is really fascinating. He radically shifts the pronouns from they to you. Read it for yourself. Go to Romans chapter 2. He says, and he starts it off. So when he's got this crowd whipped up into a frenzy, those Again, those slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, for God's sake. Those people. Then he goes, <laughs> uh, therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, uh, whoever you are when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing things. You are rebellious. You are insolent God-haters. And you're doing some of, that, some of that other stuff too. So if Paul did it right, the crowd that he just whipped up into a frenzy, all of a sudden are doing what? All play question. Cringing. Like he revealed every judgmental tendency that they have. And then he said, probably in a whisper, you guys, the 
listen to what you just did. Now, granted, I led you there. <laughs> Not fair. A couple of people would be like, hey. So Paul is prohibiting same-gender, a kind of same-gender sex in Romans 127. There's no doubt about it. But it's, it's highly unlikely that that's the focus of Romans 1 and 2 is to point out the things that are super, super wrong for you to do. It's probable that he's condemning the pederasty and male prostitution that's common in Rome in the first century, uh, practices that inclusive Christians would also condemn today. Now, that's debatable. What I've done is given you what most theologians who are affirming agree is going on. But I'm not saying that's 100% the absolute accurate interpretation. But it is, it is important to know that when Paul goes on runs like that, he was a master um, rhetorical speaker. And he knew how to make a point. The last ones are 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 1. 9 and 10, again, six total verses that seem to condemn same-sex relationships. Um, and we read, don't be deceived, male prostitutes, sodomites will not inherit the kingdom of God. And um, everyone that, uh, including people that land on the, on the traditional side, say that these verses are the most troublesome, in part because uh, Paul seems to make up a word. Um, the Greek word translated as sodomites... Uh, is first used historically in 1 Corinthians 6. So nowhere else in history is this word used. Paul seems to have made it up. And it's hard to build a theology on, on a word that, that is made up. Uh, it's never used, it's used in 1 Timothy 1.10, but never again in all the Bible. So again, I think the practices that are called sinful are in a different category than imagining what we are imagining now, which is two people of the same gender who have a monogamous, married, and sexual relationship. So, at the very least, I think it's reasonable to say, I don't know if those six verses build a really solid case against monogamous, same-sex, committed, Christian marriage. So, uh, what do you do what does the church do when it's faced with a troubling set of circumstances like this, where the Bible seems to say one thing, but now we're seeing another thing in history? Does the Bible have any passages that can guide the church when it's faced with the scenario that the Bible is not as clear as maybe we thought it was on? Uh, and so uh, the good news is, uh, yes, uh, there is a passage. Uh, but before I get into it, I, I want to just say for your consideration, okay, uh, none of us read the Bible clearly. We all come to it with our presuppositions, our biases, and our cultural lenses, right? We have to acknowledge that. We, like the Bible is God's word, we believe. That's the orthodox belief in Christianity. And if you think... You, all by yourself, or me, all by myself, have got it down. That's dangerous. But many of us were brought up 
in systems where that's what we were taught, that there is, there is a right way of looking at everything, and we have found it. And that's dangerous. Two, now I, this, this may pick fights with certain people, but I hope it doesn't. But if it does, all of us pick and choose what we focus on and what we ignore in the Bible. All of us do it. Not one of us, even if we try to, even if we claim to, is following everything that's written down in there. Even the stuff that's super clear. You know, just minor stuff like love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, just super random, obscure teachings like that. Thank you for laughing. That was time to laugh right there, wasn't it? Whew. And then, um, thirdly, for you to consider uh, that we, meaning most of culture, has already decided to reinterpret certain issues that people once said were, cl- were crystal clear, like slavery, women, divorce. And I'm teaching you this perspective, this, I'm, I'm ass- what I'm essentially doing here is laying out, if you're open and affirming or not, because the traditional side has mostly just been understood across time and across history, what I'm trying to do is help you understand how is it that someone could change their mind and become open and affirming uh, and take the Bible seriously. Because I think that's at the core of like, I mean, is it even possible to do that? And if we can't agree, no one has to agree in this room on their personal conviction about LGBTQ inclusion. What I would find it to be sad is if one side was lobbying a green at the other side and saying, you're just a homophobe, you're just a bigot. Or if the other side was lobbying a grenade at the other side and saying, well, you just don't take the Bible seriously. Like, if, if, if either one of those grenades are lobbed, the conversation's over. Amen? Like, we just can't do that. So, in Acts 10, um, whoo! Um, I'm going to decline that something on my phone and look at the time. Okay. Oof, that's probably good that it fell. Uh, Acts chapter 10, about noon the next day, they, you're going to find out who they is in a second, were on their journey and approaching the city, and Peter that was one of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, Simon Peter, he denied Jesus, was forgiven. He went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So are trances biblical? What? Anyway, falls into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill some of those animals you're seeing and eat. And Peter, good rule follower that he was, said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. <laughs> ha! Then the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Whoa. This happened three times. And again, this is all Leviticus. This is stuff that he's following because of Leviticus in the Bible. So, uh, 
This is the prelude to what the passage that Rajan read, by the way. So after the trance, some men arrived asking for Peter. They told him, so Peter's coming out of this fog. He's just been, his whole world has been rocked. What do I do with the trance that tells me to do something I've been taught that is totally wrong? And then some men arrived asking for Peter. They told him a man named Cornelius had sent them to find him and bring him back to Cornelius' house because Cornelius got that in a prayer. Now, one problem. Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter doesn't eat with Gentiles. It's another one of his things. But you can't, in the Middle East, in the first century, go to someone's house and not eat. It's impossible. So Peter is like, weird day. Am I still in a trance? Maybe. So, because of what he saw and heard in the trance, he didn't know if it was the right thing to do, you guys. But you know what he did? He went with the guys. That just seemed, that seemed right. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You know, where it's like maybe you're talking to someone who you think should be playing for the other team theologically, but they sound so faithful. They sound so committed to Christ and to God's love, and they're teaching you. What it means. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And you're like, well, what do I do with that? Just, just I'm, I'm begging you, just, just don't decide, is it right or wrong? Just take the next step toward that person. You're going to learn a lot. Yeah? Yeah. So Cornelius, Peter gets to Cornelius' house. Four days ago, Cornelius says to Peter, at this very hour, 3 o'clock, now remember, he is a Gentile. I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send some men to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. Uh, and so Cornelius said, I, therefore, I, this is in Acts chapter 10, I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. So now Peter is going to share the gospel. He knows the gospel. He's preached that message a ton of times. Or does he? Do you know what I mean? He's about to learn how big the gospel is. So, uh, later on in Acts 10, Peter picks up the story. I understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And remember the verse that, uh, that Greg read from, from Joel? Yeah? That was from the Old Testament. So we knew this was coming, but no one ever believes that what should be coming actually will come. Uh, and so, and if you just didn't get that at all, just go back in your liturgy and read Joel 2. Uh, for they heard them speaking in tongues and a stolen God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Can anyone withhold the water? What's the answer? You guys act like you haven't been in organized religion your whole life. Can anyone withhold the water of baptism if it goes up the food chain and they get, and Peter gets, you know, hey, hold on guys, just stop. I can't baptize you until I get permission 
from the Jerusalem Council. Soon as I do, soon as we hear word, you guys are baptized. Can anything stop these guys from being baptized? Absolutely. Tradition can. Peter, though, he's on a roll. He had a trance. He just preached the gospel. Holy Spirit just fell. He's like, we're baptizing these guys. And so they did. And they invited him to stay for several days. First time Peter's ever with Gentiles, eating their food, sleeping in their beds. It's crazy. So, gosh, we have three minutes left. What just happened? All play. The world changed. He changed his mind. He saw another side of the jewel. Yeah? He realized people were people. He experienced people's stories, you guys. He went to them instead of hearing things about them. He walked into their midst. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Jenny said all of it moved to him uh, moving against what he had re-understood. And I want to say something about this. Like, when we move through stages of faith and when we understand new things, here's the tendency, okay? You go, ah. Oh, Everyone should know this. And then you become the most self-righteous evangelist. And you start shaming people and judging people because now you know something they don't know. And it's super threatening. And you become a word that I can't use in this church uh, because of children uh, that are here. And the tendency is to look back and say, I was such an idiot for believing those things. And then you say, whoever still believes those things is such an idiot. But you don't have to look back and say either one of those things. You can look back and say, I needed that foundation. But if God is limitless and if God is mystery, then God is endlessly knowable. Amen? And we're going to always learn more things. And that doesn't put everything on the table as being open. But it does mean if the Bible is true, and the Bible tells stories about people's worlds being rocked, and about expanding faith, then we shouldn't be so shocked when it happens to us either. Now here's what happened. Acts 11, 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea weren't down at Cornelius' house. They heard what the, that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Because why? That's not lawful. Now, let's not make these guys into bad guys or enemies. They're just asking the question that you ask when you haven't experienced it yourself. Right? Let's not make them bad. But it goes to this whole thing. And so because we're out of time, uh, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council makes a decision that despite what is read in Genesis 17, and you go ahead and read it, it says, for all generations, male believers shall be circumcised. It is, that is the sign of the covenant. 
And it's, it's like timeless. But the Jerusalem Council, because of the example of Jesus and his own personal ethic on inclusion, the traditional interpretation of Torah, the observation of the Spirit being poured out on Gentile believers and entering into relationship with them, that Peter's experience and his vision where God gave him a fresh word, what God has made clean, you must not call profane, and after their discussion and debate while listening to the Holy Spirit together, they said this phrase, for it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit not to require male Gentiles to be circumcised at age 35 because, dang it, that would really hurt. But then, notice they say, like, now, we are still going to hold you to the not drinking uh, blood or strangled, you know, so it's still kind of weird. Like, there's still some weird stuff in there. And we're not following that. You know, it's like, like do you know what I mean? Like, we, we, we pick and choose. So, uh, okay, now, we don't have to circumcise if you're male. That's great. Uh, but, you know, I guarantee you, you've never heard one sermon extolling the sinfulness of not eating an animal that's been strangled. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was the, from the Jerusalem Council. That should be important stuff. You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy, but it really should be. Um, so those who have changed their minds on LGBTQIA inclusion, I think do so on those five data points. Jesus' example of radical inclusion, studying the Bible, interaction with LGBTQIA plus believers, a conviction that LGBTQIA persecution from the church has become a humanitarian crisis, not just a moral ethic, and after discussion and debate. And my experience with friends that have changed their mind is it, take, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to change your mind on that. Um, so over half, 52% of American LGBTQ adults have a formal religious affiliation, Almost half, 48%, identify as Christian. So it makes sense to ask the question, are churches welcoming to the LGBTQIA population? And here's the thing. The churches don't get to decide whether or not they are welcoming. You can say you're welcoming. Hope you are. It's... LGBTQIA plus brothers and sisters who get to say whether or not a particular church is welcoming. And that's tough, but come on, that's, that's just true. So la one last thing to consider is basically this. Um, no matter what you believe on this, and there really is going to be a diversity of opinion in this room on that. Everything I said at the beginning of the sermon is still true. The question is, when you have a certain theological conviction that's about the inclusion or exclusion of a certain group of people, you have to ask the question, what is the fruit of that inclusion or of that exclusion? Not, it's, it can't stay in the realm of, well, this is theologically right or wrong or in the realm of ideas. It has to go down to asking people, talking to people, what is the fruit of it? Uh, so, gang, I am so, um, I am so encouraged by your willingness 
to dive into this conversation. It's tough, isn't it? All these, these are so many threatening feelings bubble up. And for you empaths, it's like you're dying right now, feeling all the feelings in the room. Get me out. So empaths, you have freedom to leave once you take the Eucharist, because you're going to need the Eucharist today, my brothers and sisters. Um, but I love that we're going to the Eucharist next, because this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. We can center around the Lord with our diversity of opinions, with our angst, with our joy. We can do it together. Amen? Woo! Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Before we go to silence, permission to disagree with anything or everything I just said. Okay? I don't get to be the guy that says, thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the Lord for all of us. My job today, as asked, as the committee asked me to, was to discuss the verses in the Bible that relate to LGBTQIA inclusion. What I chose to do was try to lay out that it is possible to become open and affirming and hold to the Bible seriously, but I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that that is the only valid belief. Okay, that's super important. We're going to hold that tension as we move through the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.